Hungary during the First World War was a difficult place to live, especially if you happened to live in one of the many rural villages, far away from the grand city of Budapest, where the harsh conditions imposed on a country losing a war bit the hardest. Even if you managed to survive all the fighting, the riots, the violent occupations or the Spanish flu, there was always the possibility that your wife, daughter-in-law or neighbour might decide that they'd had enough of you and pay a visit to Auntie Susie, the friendly local midwife. Outside of her duties as a medical practitioner, veterinary surgeon and fortune teller, Susanna Fasikas just so happened to run a booming business turning flypaper into poison, taking the term pest control to a whole new level. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome to Dark Histories Season 8, Episode 3. I'm Ben, as always, and it's good to be back on the microphone. This episode is a little late. Well, this year has been an interesting start. So I, I over Christmas, I came down with COVID, as I mentioned, and that, that took about half of January to really clear. And uh, as soon as that was over, I managed to throw my back out, which... Um, <laughs> has been equal parts frustrating, comedy, gold and uh, painful, uh, really. So it did set this episode back a little, but what I've done is I've uh, jiggled around my workflow so that although this episode was, was going to be late because essentially what was stopping me was sitting up straight in my chair for an hour recording, um, but I've managed to carry on working with the next episode. So next episode is still due next week, so... Basically, this episode, I always, I knew I had to, I sort of resigned myself to this one being a little late, but at least I could continue working, you know, by writing and researching um, and get the next one out on time. So yeah, this episode, a little bit late. Sorry about that. Next episode will be on time. Don't worry next week. With any luck, I will stop falling apart now. <laughs> I feel like I'm showing my age now. Like fine, like I feel 40 years old at this point. Uh, you know, it's like I wake up in the mornings and my back just creaks <laughs> but uh yeah anyway hopefully they'll stop falling apart and uh we can just move on so yes uh let's get on with this week's episode so i don't think there's any other big news to mention so uh let's crack on this week's episode is called susanna Fasikas and the angel makers of Nick. at the start of the first world war hungary made up a large part of the austro-hungary empire a vast, stretching, diplomatic alliance between two states that had been one of Europe's major powers since its founding following the Austro-Prussian War in 1867. Heavily industrialised, its output in mechanised and electrical manufacturing was second only to its northern neighbours of the German Empire. With rapid expansion of its rail network, major cities like Budapest exploded in size as the rural, ethnic Hungarian population migrated en masse and newly built bridges linked what had originally been two cities, merging them into a new metropolis that served as the capital of the empire for the Hungarian side. Despite its urban growth, however, Hungary remained a largely agricultural society, and disparity grew between the bright lights of Budapest and the west versus the rural, undeveloped villages of the east, where famine was still very much a part of everyday life and one of the main causes of death in the country. With the outbreak of war in 1914, the Austro-Hungarian Empire quickly slipped into a rapid decline. Fighting disrupted both imports and exports, and as agriculture failed, the country quickly woke up to the realisation that despite having a strong export economy for foodstuffs like flour, it had been far from agriculturally self-sufficient. A fact that was hammered home as the huge military effort drew labour away from the farms and into the fighting forces, draining rural villages of entire generations of men. By the midpoint of the war, Hungary relied heavily on its German ally just to keep the country above water. As the army struggled to fight on several fronts, inflation and food shortages fueled deeply biting economic hardships back at home. Medical supplies dried up, doctors were improvising with treatments and people dying were left to rot by the side of the roads. Meanwhile, political tensions only grew as nationalist movements stirred protest and riots. Whilst all of this hardship was felt profoundly in Budapest, it was exponentially worse in the rural villages, despite many being able to supply their own food as the women and elderly took to the farms in place of their sons and husbands who had been sent off to battle. Nagarev, 60 miles southeast of Budapest, was a shining example of the disparity that built up throughout the country 
whilst the paved streets of the capital city were lit with electric lighting and lined with towering terraces of gothic spires atop multi-storied white stone and brick buildings. The streets of Nagarev were dirt tracks that connected a loose collection of small stone cottages, their wonky slate roofs no more than 15 feet from the ground. Despite the modern rail network, the small valley was 25 miles from the nearest train station, and when the weather turned harshest in the cold winter months, the entire village would become almost entirely isolated, as travel became impossible by horse-drawn cart. When the muddy ground froze over, the wolves would creep ever closer to the village, themselves desperate for food, pressed in by the impossible climate. With the isolation such as it was, medical care throughout rural Hungary was always somewhat complicated. Officially, each district would have a doctor that served all the villages throughout the territory. But with conditions making travel so difficult for six months of the year, most people would turn instead to the village midwife, who would frequently work in a more or less unofficial capacity as a doctor, a family planning nurse, and in many cases, a veterinary surgeon. Completely untrained by modern standards, this network of midwives would turn to traditional herbal remedies and other traditional medicine, the recipes of which may have been passed down through generations as the role frequently stayed within a single family. Before the Enlightenment, these women would more frequently have been considered witches and even in the early 20th century, people still held suspicions that they dabbled in magic and the occult. In Nagarev, the midwife was an elderly Hungarian Romany woman named Zuzana Fazikas whose penchant for the occult made her the village's fortune teller on top of everything else. Born in 1861, Susanna Fazikas' upbringing was one of relative poverty. Despite having a presence in the country for hundreds of years, the Roma still frequently found themselves at the sharp end of a harsh campaign of discrimination. By the mid-19th century, the Roma made up about 1% of the Austro-Hungarian population, many who still lived in segregation. Education and work were both challenges for the Romani, who were often given poor schooling, if at all, and then pigeonholed into one of a small handful of manual professions. At some point, Susanna married a non-Romani man. However, by the time she showed up in Nagarev, she was a single mother, having given birth to a daughter named Marie and two sons. In 1900, at the age of 39, Susanna was elected as the midwife to Nagarev, which was, for a woman of her upbringing, an astounding feat of social climbing. It afforded her not only a position of great centrality within the community, but also a healthy salary and an incredibly comfortable cottage in the middle of the village, one of the nicest domestic buildings available to any but the richest classes. In her new garden, nestled behind a high wooden fence, she grew flowers of every kind, and in the mornings walked through the local fields, smoking her pipe whilst collecting herbs for many of her home-crafted remedies. By the time that the war rolled around in 1914, things were somewhat less comfortable for the midwife. Her cottage, whilst homely, was increasingly busy. She'd always lived with her daughter, Marie, and when Marie had married a man named Daniel, the village barber, the two remained in the cottage, where they brought up their own two children. Meanwhile, the constraints of war began to bite hard. Medical supplies had long since dried up, and many of the men in the village, who ordinarily worked the farms and supplied much of the food, had been shipped off to fight on the various fronts. Topping it all off, the village doctor, Dr Kalman Segedi, had grown into a largely incompetent old drunk, whose visits every Tuesday were hampered even more than usual by the difficulty he now had in travelling around the district from his base in Solnok, 25 miles north of the village. Despite the increased workload that she found having to pick up the slack, Susanna managed to fare better than most. She always made a little extra from her clients on top of her regular salary, usually in the form of food and small gifts, whilst the doctor's lack of presence only served to highlight the importance of her own role and allowed her a degree of autonomy that she was quite happy with. There was, of course, the village chief, a man named Ebner, who had taken on the role the same year as Susanna had been elected as the midwife, but he was a largely ambivalent character who took a hands-off role to leadership. Over the years, Susanna had cultivated a friendly working relationship with Ebner, so that by now she could work without much in the way of interference. And the thing was, much of her work relied very much on a lack of interference with the authorities. One of Susanna's roles within the village was what could politely be called a family planner. And to that end, 
One of the remedies that she routinely brewed was a pungent concoction of white arsenic, boiled down from the recipe of vinegar and flypaper, which she bought in large quantities from the general store. When babies were born to families who could not look after them, or when they were disabled or premature or otherwise sickly, Susanna would step in with her toxic potion and remove the problem for the mother long before they could otherwise add to the infant mortality rate. A statistic that sat at a frightening 20% throughout the First World War. The whole situation was made considerably easier due to the fact that it was Susanna herself who would report the death, or, as she would be sure to impress, the stillbirth to the town bell ringer who signed and kept all records of birth and death for the village. The problem with this whole arrangement, outside of the obvious moral minefield that the situation so boldly presented, was that Zosanna took this macabre and disturbing duty a few steps further than most when she saw an opportunity to industrialise murder. Anna and Louis Serre were the landlords of the pub situated in the middle of Nagarev. Louis had been married once before, but his marriage had not lasted, and after his wife had left him, he remarried Anna, and the couple settled down in their small two-room cottage next to the pub where they slept in a single room with their three children. Outside in the small garden, they kept chickens that scratched away at the barren ground around the wooden bathtub perched by the side of the house. In classic landlord fashion, Lewis was a renowned drunk, and Anna, despite being heavily pregnant, was frequently left to run the pub whilst he was off drinking. Partially out of a sense of duty and partially a fear of Lewis's violent outburst, Anna managed to keep the pub running as an important hub for the local community, who all drank at the bar, from Alexander Kovacs Jr., a disfigured young man born with syphilis, whose family had more or less abandoned him, all the way up through to Ebner, the head of the village. When Anna finally went into labour, it was Zusanna who was there to help her deliver the baby, though it would not survive the week. Unable to afford a fourth child and unwilling to raise it alone, in her drained state, Anna gave Zusanna the nod shortly after the birth and the midwife dropped a sugar cube into a small cup of water adding a drop of her milky flypaper potion, which she then rubbed on the baby's lips. Three days later, when the newborn had finally passed away from the poison, Susanna buried the baby in a nearby field, her sister Lydia and her daughter Marie acting as a lookout. Of course, she knew exactly where to bury it, as she had buried another of Anna's children three years earlier, after it had been born premature. The grave of both of these babies was not far from one of her own. All of this was a difficult, traumatic and fairly labour-intensive business for the midwife, but it was made much easier by the fact that she would be able to collect eggs from Anna and drink for free in her pub for the foreseeable future, and this was largely how the midwife operated. She made her daily rounds throughout the village, taking care of people's aches and pains, delivering their babies and disposing of them when required. In the afternoons, she would host her neighbours in her kitchen, where she would read their futures or listen to their struggles. A fortune teller, doctor, therapist and gravedigger all wrapped up into one. It was a position which paid her handsomely, but perhaps more importantly gave her an incredible amount of power throughout the village. And somewhere down the line, she began to exercise it in frightening ways. Petra Yolia lived next door to Susanna alongside her husband, their baby and his grandparents, Mr and Mrs Ambrose. Petra's husband, Stephen, was a somewhat understandably grouchy old war veteran from the Austro-Hungarian army who had returned prematurely from the war after he had suffered a devastating artillery attack that had left him missing an eye and blinded in the one that remained. Before retiring to the village, he had spent six months as a Russian prisoner of war. Following the fighting, he struggled to sleep and suffered from various physical ailments, including a persistent lung infection and constant stomach pains that made his life constantly uncomfortable. In his frustrations, he frequently became violent, with Petra bearing the brunt of many of his outbursts. Petra had had a good upbringing compared to many women in the village. Born into a wealthy, landowning family, she had been well-educated and had been looking forward to a life somewhat less troubled. On a visit to Susanna one afternoon, Petra brought up Stephen's difficulty sleeping, his violent outbursts, and asked if she had any remedy that could help calm him down. For the next three weeks, the midwife visited Stephen and Petra, slowly poisoning him with her white arsenic solution, which she dropped into his water. At first, the solution had helped him to sleep. 
It had also given him chronic stomach problems. But with his chronic pains, that was an ailment that was not particularly novel anymore. And the doctor, when he was called in, didn't really think that any of his usual problems had progressed in any alarming ways. Not until he died, at least. On Wednesday the 20th of September 1916, three weeks after Petra had requested Susanna help her in a situation. It was a unique proposition for the midwife. Susanna was something of a catch in the village and now, newly widowed, Susanna considered that she would make a fine wife for her recently divorced son, especially given her family's wealth. Unfortunately, Petra had no plans to marry into the midwife's family at all. In fact, it seems she had no interest in even associating with the midwife at all following her husband's death. Maria Zendi had also grown up in relatively good conditions for a member of Nagarev's peasant class. Her parents had owned their own fields, which had set them apart from many. Her situation improved even further once she had grown up and she had married a man named Alexander Kovacs, who had come from a background even wealthier than her own. Unfortunately, the marriage was not to last and she found herself unceremoniously disposed of after Alexander returned home one day to discover her sleeping with another man. With a degree of shame, she left her 14-month-old son, the syphilitic Alexander Jr., under the care of her parents and disappeared to Budapest, where she hoped to start a new chapter without the burden of a judgmental rural community hanging over her shoulders. In the big city, she made the most of a capital still on the rise and joined in with high society, where she had relationships with several prominent rich and powerful men, before she finally settled down and remarried. At the outbreak of the war, her husband, who was a lieutenant in the army, left for the front, leaving her to her own devices. Now alone in the city, she began writing to a man named Michael Cardos, a wealthy landowner who had previously served as a judge from back home in Nagarev, and in his younger years had been something of a ladies' man, even having a short relationship with Susanna, the omnipresent midwife. Eventually, when Michael visited Budapest for business, Maria began an affair with him that ultimately led her to flee the city and enact a triumphant return to Nagarev 20 years after her exile in order to marry her new catch. Naturally, Maria's return was the talk of the village and was certainly not seen in the most positive light by many. After dumping her infant son, the sickly Alexander Jr. had grown up under the care of the village and now her return was not entirely welcome. Not that she had any great plans to begin looking after Alexandria Jr., who spent most of his days gambling with cards in the pub opposite Maria and Michael's new house. Fortunately, Maria still had a friend in Susanna. The two had been good friends in their younger years, and now, with the accusing whispers that followed her around the village, she found the midwife's home a welcome sanctuary in the afternoons, where she visited daily, often to hear about her future fortune. Whilst visiting the midwife, Maria spilled all of her concerns to Susanna, including how she found the presence of her ex-husband and her disabled son to be a lasting burden, the ghosts of her past that would not allow her to enjoy her new situation, married to her wealthy husband. Fortunately, for Maria, half of the problem corrected itself when Alexander Sr. passed away later that year of apoplexy. His death had come as something of a surprise for many, but it was nothing short of a relief for Maria. The second half of the problem was partially solved not long after, when Maria leveraged her social connections in Budapest and arranged a job with the postal service for her son, who would at least be out of sight and out of mind. By 1918, the failing military campaign in the war had wreaked havoc on Hungary, and just when things were at their very worst for the country, waves of the Spanish flu struck the population. The pandemic snuck up on the country, whose press for a long time wrote that the virus caused only mild symptoms, despite the fact that by September, some villages were reporting 50% of the populations that were sick, with many people dying. In Nagarev, care for the flu victims fell to Zuzana, who had commandeered the town crier's house as a quarantine, where she spent every day administering herbal remedies, protected by a mask that she had dipped in vinegar and a generous use of her traditional Romany charms. Just as the worst of the disease had passed, the end of the First World War brought a new menace to rural Hungary, in the form of the Romanian army, marching their way through the country which they sought to occupy in the fallout, leading to the Hungarian-Romanian War. The collapse of the Austro-Hungarian Empire had been dramatic, and a level of chaos was quick to fill the void. In Budapest, rioters, revolutionaries and communist sympathisers filled the streets, 
protesting and murdering those against their beliefs. In Nagarev, the village was turned upside down as they were occupied by the Romanian army who garrisoned themselves in all of the nicest buildings, turfing out the officials from their homes, ousting Ebner from his position as clerk and replacing him with their own commanders. A curfew fell across the village and armed patrols walked the streets at night. Maria's son, Alexander Jr., had long been sent home to Nagarev from Budapest after the transport office had deemed him unfit to work and now, with the occupiers threatening to beat, rape and kill with impunity, Maria and Michael took the young man into their home to keep him safe, much to the chagrin of Maria, who still found her son little more than an embarrassing burden. Fortunately, for Susanna and Maria, the combination of the occupation, alongside the tail end of the Spanish flu, presented a unique opportunity. And before long, Alexander Jr. found himself sick in bed, suffering from nausea and bowel issues, under the care of Maria's good friend, the village midwife. Susanna had been visiting Alexander three times a day for weeks, instructing Maria on how to mix her white arsenic solution into his food and drink, all the time charging her a price so steep that only her new station as the wife of the rich Michael allowed her to afford. Alexander himself assumed he was simply sick with the flu, despite finding himself bedbound for over a month, whilst Maria did everything in her power to care for her ailing son, who she continued to poison daily. By November, his skin had turned grey and his hair had fallen out in large clumps. His already thin frame was wasting away to nothing. Finally, on the 19th of November, after almost three months of poisoning, he passed away aged just 23 years old, much to the great relief of Maria and Susanna, who had been carefully upping the dosage as his body had continued to build up a tolerance, whilst ensuring that he never became so sick as to cause any suspicion. After his death, Susanna called for the bell ringer, giving the cause of death as consumption, whilst Michael dug the young man's grave, Maria doing everything in her power to spend as little as possible on the funeral. Susanna had already demanded a great deal for the poison, and now she was demanding more, requesting that Maria hand over the deeds to Alexander Jr.'s cottage, which she planned to pass on to her son. Maria begrudgingly agreed to hand over the deed in six months, but it would prove to be something of a contentious deal, especially after she and Michael took in a pair of refugees who had been fleeing from Transylvania named Franklin and Marcella in return for their labour on Michael's farms. Perhaps unsurprisingly, with all the busy work of both poisoning and looking after her son, Maria's relationship with Michael had been suffering quite heavily. The pair had eventually married, but only after Maria had threatened to leave if Michael did not make their union official. Ever since, Michael had slowly been drinking more and more and spending less and less time at home, and with the arrival of Franklin on the scene, Maria found a new man to snare. The end of the year signalled a great deal of change for the village. With the occupation finally relaxed, life had slowly been returning to normal, when the old doctor decided it was time for him to step down and hand his duties over to his son, Dr. Kalman Zagedi Jr. Naturally, This caused a great deal of anxiety in Susanna, who had been quite happy with the grossly incompetent care given from Zagedi Sr. Her anxieties only increased when Zagedi Jr. arrived on the scene in November of 1919 and it became clear that he was a different breed altogether from his father. Taking a far more modern approach to his duty of care, Zagedi Jr. was not particularly interested in the culture of letting untrained midwives do the legitimate work of an educated doctor. And like many who sought to modernise the country, he saw the practice as nothing but an archaic peasant tradition in rural communities that needed dragging up to date. It was fairly safe to say then that he was everything that Susanna had feared. When Dr Sergei Jr. arrived in Nagarev, his first port of call was the village hall in order to pour over the village records and ascertain the state of the community. By the end of his first day, he was far from happy with what he had seen. He returned to his base in Solnok and ruminated on the patterns that he believed he'd been seeing, stewing on his suspicions before returning a week later and marching straight into Ebner's office, where he aired his concerns. What he believed he had discovered, he told the clerk, was the village's unnaturally high rate of stillbirths. Not only that, but he had also noticed a peculiar pattern in the surviving children, with families far too frequently having only two children, one a girl and one boy. 
It was remarkably symmetrical, and he was quite sure absolutely handcrafted. Just by taking a cursory look at the records, he was convinced that the midwife, Susanna Fazekas, had been murdering newborn children as a form of birth control. It was a serious accusation, and as such, would need to be dealt with by the proper authorities, as opposed to the village justice that was normally meted out for most crimes. The town crier was called and sent to collect the gendarme from a neighbouring town, who were then dispatched to Susanna's house, where she was unceremoniously dragged through the village to Ebner's office, kicking and screaming, where she yelled out to onlookers that she had done absolutely nothing wrong. The Hungarian gendarmes were not known for their subtlety, and at times were quite happy turning their interrogations towards violence in order to learn what they wanted to know. Luckily, for everyone involved, this occasion called for little more than a few angry questions before Susanna confessed. She had killed the babies, she told the men. Of course she had. She offered an important integral village service, she argued. It was one of her obligations, and just one part of her job. She called herself an angel-maker, and as a midwife, she went on, she offered a practical solution to a difficult problem that plagued almost all of the families of the village. In most cases, she believed she was carrying out little more than an act of mercy. After hearing all of this, the gendarme charged her with nine counts of abortion without hesitation and carted her away from the village to the county penitentiary in Zolnok. Once in Zolnok County Jail, Susanna had plenty of time to consider her situation. Housed alone, being the only female prisoner, she was isolated in a tiny stone cell with no window and no comforts but a rotten straw bed and a chamber pot tossed into the corner. Twice a day she saw the guard who bought her food and coffee and once a week she saw her family on visiting day. But otherwise, she was more or less serving a sentence in solitary confinement, waiting for her case to be heard by the judges. Shortly after she had first arrived, she had been visited by a doctor who had analysed her, concluding that she was both intelligent and psychologically sound. But since then, she had been left with little to do but sit around and wait for her family to secure a lawyer. Fortunately, Susanna's position in the village had paid her such a salary and her little side gig hadn't hurt either, that she could afford to employ one of the top lawyers of the day, Gabrielle Kovacs, who promptly advised her to retract her confession and deny everything. Susanna's trial was a quiet affair, taking place in a small courtroom in front of no one but a few local journalists. Several villagers had been called in to give shining character references for the defence, with their dedication to the duty of care during the Spanish flu pandemic taking centre stage from many. When Susanna was called to the stand herself, she took her lawyer's advice and denied all accusations against her, saying that she had only confessed at the time of her arrest due to being afraid of the gendarmes, fearing their reputation for violence. Their questions had been vicious, she said, and forced her to say things that should simply not been true. When Ebner, the village clerk, was called, he said very little. Naturally, as a clerk and friend of Susanna, he knew far more about the situation than he cared to admit. But on the stand, he kept his head low and said no more than he ever needed. In retaliation, Dr. Zagedi dived into his meticulous research into the village's documents, highlighting all of the unwholesome and thoroughly uncanny patterns that he had found within the records. Whenever the judge asked him questions or requested that he clarify his points, the doctor expanded with precise detail. Both the prosecution and then the defence gave a fairly short summary, and the three judges who were overseeing the trial, discussed the case before returning a verdict of guilty. Unsurprisingly, Susanna took the decision badly and the gendarmes were forced to drag her from the courtroom as she spat at the judges, screaming at them at the top of her voice. As soon as she was back in her cell, the lawyer, Gabrielle Kovacs, put in an appeal request, which was granted, along with a hefty bail that, somehow, the Vizikas family managed to rummage up, allowing Susanna to return home to Nagarev while she awaited the appeal decision. While she had been away, rumours had spread through the village. Nagarev was a small place after all and whispers carried quickly. Knowledge of the stillbirths was widely known and accepted, but now people began to talk. What about all the other deaths that had been so suspicious? Alexander Jr. for one had been sudden and out of the blue. What's more, Susanna's magical abilities began being carefully discussed. Many knew that she had told fortunes, but what about all her other charms and rituals? The murmurings annoyed Susanna, who found her homecoming to be not quite as triumphant as she had perhaps envisaged. Worse, she had been officially stripped of her position of the town's midwife, 
which took not only her job, her power and her salary, but it also would potentially see her stripped of her cottage, rendering her homeless with nowhere else to go. She traipsed through the village, frustrated as many of her old clients now seemingly gave her something of a wide berth. The truth of it was, as much as Susanna detested being stripped of her role in the village, and of all of the accusatory village talk, people had every right to be suspicious and afraid. With the removal of Susanna from her position in the village, Nagarev was in the market for a new midwife. Fortunately, Susanna had the perfect replacement in mind, and though she had no ability to install the replacement herself, she had enough influence with Ebna, the village clerk, that she could feel pretty confident that her recommendation would stand a good chance. Keeping with the tradition of Romany wise women skipping a generation within a family and grandmothers training up their granddaughters, Susanna put forward her own granddaughter, Marie, for the position, despite her only being 11 years old at the time. The case for Marie gaining the position was helped considerably after her main rival for the role mysteriously went missing. There were rumours that Susanna had poisoned her and tossed her body into the river, but they never amounted to anything other than rumours, and none of the officials, including Ebna the clerk, took them seriously enough to warrant any investigation. Though the fact that the woman's son burst into Susanna's garden and fired two shots at her from his pistol in retribution for his mother's death does suggest that the rumours may well have harboured some merit. Both shots missed Susanna, who managed to dive out of harm's way, and after a search uncovered the shooter, the man was promptly arrested and carted off to jail for attempted murder. As far as Dr Sagedi was confirmed, his only stipulation was to insist that whoever the village installed as midwife, that she apprenticed under him before being given free reign, despite the fact that he had absolutely zero experience in childbirthing himself. In testament to how much sway Susanna had within the village, not only was Marie installed as the new midwife the following November, but Susanna herself barely skipped a beat in her duties, despite being suspended. Every day, she would go out on her usual rounds, caring for the locals, exactly as she had for the previous 20 years. Around this time, old Mr Ambrose, Susanna's long-time neighbour, began to fall chronically ill. At 78 years old, he had in truth been very ill for some time, but recently, when looking after him, Susanna had noticed his heart getting weaker. It was about time, the midwife decided, that something be done about the situation. One evening in late September of 1921, she slipped into the Ambrose house and, under the guise of care, poured the old man a brandy, adding a couple of teaspoons of white arsenic solution to the drink. That evening, the old man passed away, with no one suspicious of any other death other than old age. January of 1922 brought a new opportunity to Susanna's doorstep. Once more, her friend Maria had found herself in a patch of trouble. Her husband, Michael, had for some time been acting distant. Shortly after Alexander Jr.'s death, and after they had taken in the two refugees, he had started sleeping out in his barn at night. So this was something that wasn't entirely unusual in the village, but on top of his prolonged absences, where he disappeared off to Budapest for work, Maria began suspecting him of having an affair. Her fears were realised when she rooted through his pockets one night and discovered a handwritten note from a woman in the capital. Replacing the note, she took off straight to Susanna's house and vented her frustrations over a good fortune-telling session. It would be too much to go through a third divorce, she complained. Instead, why not just kill him? It was a suggestion that Susanna was happy to get on board with, especially given the prices she could charge Maria for her services. If Maria held any concerns, they were quickly dispelled when Susanna reminded her that they'd easily gotten away with disposing of Alexander Jr. once before. This job would surely be no different. For the poison and instructions on how to administer, Susanna suggested an exorbitant price, a small fortune to almost anyone in the village, but not so much for Maria, who had married into significant wealth. On top of the cash, however, she now demanded that Maria come good on her promise of handing over Alexander Jr.'s old cottage on top. Maria agreed, and the two got to work immediately. It had been a good start to the year for the midwife, her granddaughter had been working hard with the doctor. Maria's money would help her to recover comfortably after the costs of hiring her lawyer. And if that wasn't enough, she received a letter from Zolnok 
informing her that her appeal would be heard in January the following year. Things were looking up. That spring, Maria's husband Michael slowly began to fall sick. Unfortunately for Maria, Michael had a somewhat more discerning palate when it came to his brandy than her son had had, and realising that his drink had been tasting peculiar, he asked his refugee maid, Marcella, where the brandy had come from. As soon as she confirmed that Maria had prepared it with the help of Zusanna, he doubled down on his suspicions, voicing them with the maid. Concerned that Michael's sickness had turned him delirious, Marcella told Zusanna everything that he had said to her, hoping that Zusanna could treat his delirium along with this other mysterious sickness. This put Zusanna into a precarious position. The dosages of her flypaper poison had to be meticulously measured to ensure that any victim would deteriorate at a balanced and gradual pace to avoid suspicion. On the other hand, if Michael did harbour suspicions, what would happen if he took them to the authorities? As it turned out, it was a well-founded concern on behalf of the midwife, as Michael had been voicing his worries to more than just the maid. He had told a good friend that he believed that he was being poisoned, and so with Michael being too ill to leave the house, his friend had visited the town hall in order to schedule an appointment with Dr. Segedi. Back in the midwife's home, Susanna had panicked. Realising that something had to be done quickly, she gave Marcella a pair of small white pills, which she told her were sleeping pills to calm down Michael and to help him treat his delirium. When Marcella handed them over to Michael, and he rightfully asked her where she had obtained them, tragically, Marcella lied and told him that she had collected them from the apothecary herself, realising that if she had mentioned Susanna's name, it was likely to trigger his delirium. The next day, Michael was dead. In a testament to both his wealth and popularity in the village, the entire place closed down for his funeral in order for everyone to attend. That evening, as Maria put on a good show at mourning for the crowds, she refused to sign Alexander Junior's cottage over to Susanna, infuriating the midwife. She wanted the cottage for herself, just as she had wanted all the rest of Michael's properties. The following January, Susanna was acquitted in her appeal, leaving her free to live as she pleased. Despite no longer being the de facto midwife in Nagarev, she returned to the village following the trial and continued to assist her granddaughter, who had, by now, graduated from Dr. Zagedi's training. In truth, almost nothing had changed, and just as she had continued to work and do as she pleased, despite being stripped of her position and Dr. Zagedi forbidding her to be involved, it was Marie who acted as Susanna's assistant, rather than the other way round. Not that either really changed much in the village. While Susanna was away from the village to attend her appeal, Anna Cesare, the pub landlord, had given birth to another child, with Marie delivering the baby alone, which she then promptly poisoned, just as her grandmother had shown her. Christina Xarbay's husband had returned from the war an angry man. In the months and years following the end of the war, their relationship had deteriorated dramatically, with Mr Xarbay turning intensely violent. Christina carried not only the bruises he left on her around the village, but the embarrassment and shame that they carried with them as everyone gossiped about her failed relationship behind her back. One evening, after a particularly brutal beating that had left her with a broken foot, she hobbled to Susanna's house looking for medical attention. When she left later that evening, she received much more. Later that year, as summer began to fade and both her husband and baby son fell ill, Susanna began supplying Christina with white arsenic and instructing Christina on how to administer it daily. With the doctor already treating them for dysentery, Christina's husband's slow decline over the following month took no one by surprise. Rose Pirate had come to Nagarev when she was just 10 years old. Her parents had sent her to the village from Budapest in order to work as a maid, and eventually she had grown older, settled down and married, and simply never left. After her husband hanged himself, she remarried a year later to a local man named Charles Holbier. It was a union that caused quite a stir throughout the village. Rose had already been the subject of hushed whispers for some time, with many people believing that she had driven her first husband to suicide. Now, with her marriage to Charles, people were openly talking. Far from a catch, Charles was an old widower who had eight children from a previous marriage. On top of that, he had been born with a clubbed foot and walked with difficulty, with every step causing him a great deal of pain. 
There was one thing that everyone could see that Rose may well have been attracted to, however, and that was the fact that Charles was a wealthy landowner who owned a large estate on the boundary of the village. To the surprise of absolutely no one, the relationship was not destined to last for very long, and within a year, Rose had moved out of Charles's estate and back to her home in Nagarev, leaving her husband and his eight children without as much as a second thought. Not entirely thrilled that his new young wife had left him, Charles did what he felt he had to do. He fostered all of his children away, sold all of his property, liquidating all of his assets, and moved in with Rose. This fairly drastic move naturally caused a lot of chatter throughout the village. Charles had been known as a keen family man before he had met Rose, and so people began suspecting her of witchcraft and of bewitching the poor old soul. It didn't take too long for Susanna to get involved. Rose had always been a good friend of Lydia, Susanna's sister, and it was Lydia who suggested Rose go and see the midwife. In October of that year, Charles fell ill. Apparently, Rose had something of an impatient streak in her though, and when she decided that Charles was not dying quickly enough, she visited Lydia to complain. Lydia assured her not to be concerned, and the next day she visited Charles with some duck soup for lunch. The next day, Charles was dead. Expediting Charles's death did bring up something of a conundrum, however. A month earlier, the bell ringer, whose duty it had been to sign the death certificates, had died, and his replacement had not been voted in yet. In his place, all death certificates were instead being signed by Dr. Sagedi, and so Susanna ordered Rose take the certificate to see him at his home, five miles away in Sibakaza, and have him sign it there. Susanna was gambling that the doctor would not make the trip to Nagarev due to the poor weather and therefore just sign the certificate without examining the body. What Susanna hadn't bargained for, however, was the fact that Charles had been a good friend of Dr. Sagedi, who, upon hearing about his death from Rose, packed his bag straight up and rode to the village immediately. When Dr. Sagedi stepped into Charles's room and shone the dim light on his dead friend, he was already full of suspicion. The rain had been awful on the journey over to the village, but he had been adamant that he would make it to examine Charles's body before any death certificate would be signed. He looked over the body, laying in the bed, noticing the vomit stains on his clothing. Outside of this, though, everything looked quite unremarkable. It was possible that the man had died from a heart attack, but he would not be able to tell until an autopsy could be carried out. After he left the house, he visited the village hall to speak to Clark Ebner, telling him that he believed Charles had been murdered and he asked him to summon the gendarme. The following day, the officials arrived on the scene. Witnesses were rounded up and testimonies were given. Rather damningly, Charles's friend, the village coffin maker, told the gendarme that he had seen Charles the day before he had died when he had told him that he thought he might have eaten some bad soup and he had suspicions that Rose was trying to poison him. Unfortunately for Dr. Sagedi, Gossip and suspicion were not enough to build any sort of case. No poison or any other suspicious evidence could be found in Rose's house, and so everything hinged on whether or not the gendarme could extract a confession. The next day, Charles was buried, forcing the doctor to write to the high sheriff in Zolnok to request an exhumation in order for him to carry out an autopsy. However, three weeks later, the reply came denying the request due to a lack of funds to carry out any investigation. The whole affair had infuriated the doctor and his growing dislike of Nagarev only increased when Susanna's son-in-law, Daniel, was appointed as the new bell ringer, a placement that he was sure was all very tidy for the midwife who would no doubt have full control over the death certificates for the village. In October of 1928, Clark Ebner passed away, leaving a position open for the village head. Ebner had always been a laid-back, hands-off kind of official more interested in hunting than actually doing any work. But his replacement, the village's former taxman, Count Molnar, was anything but hands-off. As the village tax collector, he'd quickly racked up the complaints against him after his arrival ten years earlier and had become known throughout as an overly busy technocrat. Now, at the head of the village, he looked to run the place like his own mini-dictatorship. Just like the doctor, when he first took office, officially in January of 1929, his first order of business was to clear through all of Ebner's old junk and sort through all the old files and records that were left cluttering the office in the village hall. It was tiresome work, until the Count uncovered a file that stood out from all the others. 
It was full of anonymous notes to Ebner concerning numerous deaths in the village that the writers deemed suspicious. Before long, the list of names grew to a worrying length, and the Count decided that he had no option but to write to the High Sheriff to alert him to the situation. And then, just as he was waiting for a reply, the Count received his own note, left in the village hall offices, once again the cellar remaining anonymous. Meanwhile, seven miles away, in Tizakert, a man named Anton Bartel had stumbled into the gendarmerie looking deathly ill. The night before, he told them, a local woman named Esther Zabo had tried to kill him by insisting he drink a glass of poisoned wine. When his wife had discovered her sick husband, she had almost fallen over on the spot. A few weeks earlier, she had been complaining about Anton's constant and excessive drinking to her sewing circle when Esther had suggested that she could help her out. The offer had been ominous enough that it had put Mrs Bartel off attending the circle since, and now, seeing her husband looking gravely ill, she was convinced that Esther had gone through with it and poisoned him. Helping her husband out to the horse and cart, the two rode to the doctor's office, where Segedi pumped Anton's stomach. Upon hearing Anton's story, the gendarme headed over to Esther's house and immediately arrested her, along with her friend, while Mrs Madaraz, who had made such a fuss yelling at the gendarme that she would tell them everything, so they took her in too. Back at the gendarmerie, confusion reigned. For Esther's part, she had kept silent and told the officials nothing. Mrs Madaraz, on the other hand, had said all too much, but it had not been what anyone was expecting. It turned out that she knew nothing at all about Anton's sickness, nor whether or not Esther had poisoned him. What she did know, however, was that she had poisoned and killed her own father-in-law after he had continuously sexually assaulted her. One afternoon, when her husband had walked in whilst he had been attempting to rape her, they both decided to pay Esther a visit in order to buy a small vial of white poison. When the gendarme asked where Esther had said that she had got this vial of poison from, Mrs Madaraz told them that she had purchased it from the village's elderly Romany midwife, Christina Sordas, who just so happened to be Susanna's cousin. Esther Sabo, Mrs Madaraz and her husband were all arrested and transported to Zolnop, where they repeated their confessions, with Esther adding in that she had also killed her uncle way back in 1923. News of the arrest reached the prosecutor's office around the same time that Count Molnar's letter about the mysterious anonymous notes arrived from Nagarev. Putting two and two together, and knowing that both Nagarev and Tizaka were so close, Prosecutor Kronberg began making his own inquiries into what was going on out in the villages leading to the Royal Court of Zolnok ordering a full investigation. Meanwhile, back in Nagarev, the news of Christina Sordas' arrest travelled quickly through the village. When Susanna found out, she immediately panicked, rushing home to begin disposing of her stash of poisons, tossing all of her flypaper into the fire and pouring out vial after vial of white arsenic. She still had several large jars buried in the garden, but their disposal could wait until later, she reasoned. When the gendarme rolled into Nagarev, it was as if the entire village sucked in a deep breath. Over the following days, backup gendarme arrived in the village, who commandeered the village hall as a makeshift prison and interrogation rooms, whilst over a dozen women were taken into custody, including Susanna. Emboldened by the investigation, more and more tip-offs rolled in to the officials from the whole district as the number of suspicious deaths spiralled. As the gendarme worked to unravel the confusion in Nagarev, Kronberg assembled a team of forensic investigators, including Dr Henry Orsos, the chief of staff at Zolnok County Hospital. At the same time, exhumations were being applied for left, right and centre, with dozens of local men employed to dig graves, as any bodies whose deaths were deemed to have been suspicious were given autopsies by two doctors, with any suspicious remains being sent to the National Hungarian Royal Judicial Chemical Institute in Budapest. After so many months and years of turning a blind eye, it seemed like finally the Hungarian officials were doing their best to make up for the thoroughly botched past. The problem was, in most cases, unless any of those arrested were willing to confess, there was very little that the officials could pin on them. And Zusanna, having learnt from her previous arrest, was unsurprisingly choosing to say absolutely nothing, leading her to be bailed shortly after. This was more than could be said for Marie, who chose to cut her wrists while she was being held in the village hall. 
Fortunately, she was able to be bandaged up in time for the display to be little more than an admission of guilt and she found herself charged with multiple cases of infanticide. Others had done similarly and been more successful. When the gendarmes showed up at the door of a woman named Juliana Petius, they found her body hanging from the ceiling in her home. With the scale of the operation, however, silence could not save Susanna forever. Early tests carried out by forensic doctors by the side of the graves were turning up traces of arsenic everywhere, notably in Alexander Jr. and Michael Cardus's bodies, though some were surprised that both Ebner and Susanna's estranged husband seemed to test negative. And whilst the tests continued and more and more bodies were exhumed, tip-offs and notes continued to flood into the officials as neighbours pointed fingers at one another, telling stories of wealthy father-in-laws being murdered for their inheritances and of beaten wives killing their abusive husbands in what was fast beginning to look like a murder ring that seemed to stretch for miles outside of Nagarev itself. Once Susanna had been released, one enterprising gendarme followed her home and then, all around the village that afternoon, taking note of all the houses that she stopped in on her rounds and then later that day went back to each and every single door rounding up the woman to be taken in for questioning. Another gendarme, frustrated at the continued silence by the majority of suspects, decided to hide himself away under one of the straw beds in the village hall in order to spy on Lydia and Rose Holbier. As Lydia sat and advised Rose to confess to buying poison and killing her husband, but making sure that she kept Susanna's name out of it, the gendarme leapt out of his hiding place and arrested the pair of them on the spot. Susanna had been keeping a keen eye on the investigation and a keen ear to the ground following who had been rounded up and who had talked and who had been arrested. Her anxiety rose with every new name who admitted their guilt. On July the 19th, when the gendarme came calling on her home once more, she came to the inevitable conclusion that her game was finally up. Outside, the officials yelled to the midwife to come out and a small crowd began to gather. As the voices bellowed across the dirt tracks of the village, the crowd swelled in anticipation, until finally Susanna burst out from her house, shouting and screaming at the gendarmes. She picked up a piece of wood, held it at the officials and made a dash towards her barn. In a mad panic, the gendarmes kicked through the gate and followed her, but they had left it too late. In a horrendous panic, the midwife had downed a vial of potash before diving beneath a workbench, forcing the gendarme to drag her from her hiding place and frantically pour milk over her face, in a poor attempt to dilute the solution. Cries for the doctor to be sent for rang out from the barn, but the poison was caustic and brutal, and within 60 seconds, Susanna Farkas was dead. By late August, the investigation had turned into huge news, reported globally, as Nagarev was nicknamed the Village of Death. Many of the women were portrayed as monsters and midwives as archaic and grotesque. In America and the UK, papers printed a short Reuters article that mentioned wholesale exhumations. In September, the order for all infants to be exhumed was carried out as over 100 women from Nagarev and the local area were held for interrogation. In December, even Time magazine reported on the investigation, though it was somewhat poetic concerning the genesis of Zusanna the Poisoner. One day, Mrs. Fazekas saw a fly sip from a saucer in which was a sheet of arsenical flypaper drop dead. She saw a chicken eat the fly and drop dead in turn. Mrs. Fazekas pondered these interesting phenomena, then ordered great quantities of flypaper from neighbouring villages. By the end of the year, over 162 bodies had been exhumed, or were ordered to be exhumed. 82 deaths were deemed suspicious by the royal court, with 66 women indicted and seven men as their accomplices. Of those, 29 women and two men were tried for murder and 16 were convicted in trials that took several years to complete and were so popular amongst the public that tickets had to be sold. As the pieces of the puzzle slowly came together, it seemed that Susanna had not only been helping women of Nagarev to dispose of their unwanted family members, but she had been distributing her white arsenic solution on a near-industrial scale, utilising midwives in other villages like Christina Kasordas, whom she sent great quantities of poison to through the post, aided by her son, who worked as the Nagarev postmaster. Christina was sentenced to death alongside Esther Sabo and Maria Sendi, 
who were among the first women to be hanged in Hungary for decades, their executions making the news across the globe. The young peasant for whom Maria Carlos poisoned her husband was among those who witnessed her death. The youth broke down when he saw her contorted face. The woman died slowly, struggling. She was pronounced dead 18 minutes after the trap was sprung. For God's sake, have mercy, the woman shrieked on the scaffold. She clutched at the hangman's arm, imploring her to fulfil her last wish that he cover her head and face before she was hanged. It is not the custom to do so in Europe, and her face remained bared for those who wished to gaze at her. Lord, be merciful, she cried, as they prepared her for the end. They were her last words. Several other women from Nagarev and the surrounding villages were sentenced to long prison sentences, including Rose Holbier and Christina Ksarbay, though more than a few were released far earlier. In total, four women took their own lives before they could face trial. Meanwhile, Prosecutor Kronberg applied for further scrutiny into the death records, dating even further back than the initial investigation had allowed for, but the application was denied, leading some to estimate that the murder rate could have been even higher, with the number around 300 touted as a fair potential. Marie Fazikas, Susanna's granddaughter, was sentenced to 10 years for infanticide, but only served two before having her sentence overturned. Upon her return to Nagarev, she was dismissed as the midwife, as the role gradually found itself being phased out in favour of the modernisation of medical care throughout the country. She attempted to be reinstated to the position three years later, but her application was denied. That was the story of the angel makers of Nagarev, and we're going to speak a little bit about that after these short advert breaks. Forbidden history, grisly ghosts, monstrous cryptids, and harrowing folklore dominate Japan's history and culture. Mysterious Japan is a bi-weekly podcast presenting these spine-chilling horror stories, urban legends, and unbelievable histories in a campfire story format. Many of these tales have never been presented in English before. Our journey takes place where dark history and supernatural folklore collide. Mysterious Japan is produced, written, and translated by recognized Japan expert Dr. Heath Avey. Season 1 relates the unbelievable legends and ghost stories from the so-called suicide forest. Listen to Mysterious Japan for free on Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at our website at themysteriousjapan.com and be transported by unbelievable stories where the lines between reality and folklore become blurred in the shadowlands of Japan. Once again, that's themysteriousjapan.com. Welcome back. So that's a story. Um, I'm not really sure where we're going to start here. There's a lot to go through. And it's a complicated and quite sensitive, I think, topic. Um, I think what's important to talk about before we speak about anything else is that the poison that Susanna created was incredibly brutal. It killed people slowly and painfully. And so she she was metering out the dosage so slowly that the the body would actually build up a resistance in a lot of cases, which is why it took like months to kill some people because they were essentially like building up a resistance and then they were up in the dosage and just until they killed them. It was a grim way to murder someone. And I'm not saying that there's ever a good way to murder someone, but... I think that's possibly something that's worth bearing in mind when we think about some of the other uses she used for it. So before we get started on that as well, there's a few things like, you know, what was going through Susanna's mind? Like, I feel like after reading quite a bit into her, that you can call her a sociopath, but I think this also is, a, is an example of how sometimes she thought she was doing a good thing. So when she killed her neighbour, she'd been neighbours with him for years and she was good friends and she went over to his house daily to look after him. She cared for him in his old age and then when she realised that he was probably on his last legs, she just killed him, just like that. Now, she thought she was doing it, you know, as an act of mercy, which we'll get back to later. We'll come back to that one later. But I think in every occasion she killed people and I think she thought she was doing a good deed. 
her killing the neighbour is no different from her killing all of the husbands that were coming back from the war. And so where it gets difficult is how much of it is was truly an act of mercy. So you had husbands coming back from the war who were beating their wives because, you know, that was what they did back then. And you had these wives that were maybe not up for taking that anymore. You know, it's not justification to kill them. But you can kind of see where Susanna was thinking that this is possibly an act of mercy. You know, it's, it's, I think what what's difficult to talk about with this particular subject is that it's a subject with a lot of nuance and we obviously don't have that. We obviously don't have that context anymore. And also, I think, ultimately, I think we have to just think that Susanna was absolutely psychotic. So, so you know, for every, for every husband that, that, that was spoken about as like, you know... Um, battering their wives to the point where they feared for their lives there was a husband who'd come back from the war with PTSD and because he was struggling with work now he was sort of deemed useless and so disposed of and 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 so you, you see you know for every murder that you can see Susanna doing and, and, and saying okay I don't agree with that and I think it's a terrible thing that she's done I can kind of understand her motive in a historical context. You get a murder like that where she's just killing like men with PTSD who were deemed sort of sub surplus to requirements by their wives. Um, you of course then also get the people that were killing people for inheritances and things like that. Like it's, it's, it's a mad story. It's really a truly insane story, especially when it comes to the uh, figures, you know, the, the, the amount of people that were murdered um, I think the abortion element is difficult because, of course, it, well, it's not abortions; is it? she was killing babies, um, and and, it, and that's really tough because obviously it's when you mention, like, like as I mentioned, that, that the painful way that it was killing these babies, it it wasn't killing them quickly. It's, it's a disgusting thing that she was doing, and it's really wrong. You know, the execution of it was incredibly poor. But again, in a historical context, I, I can understand why she thought that it was an act of mercy and she was doing a good thing. Like when she was first arrested for killing the babies, you know, for her, she was like, yeah, I killed them. It's part of my job. You know, it's just it's just part of what I do. You know, I can understand why she thought that, especially with the infant mortality rate in Hungary at that time being like 20%. And they're the ones that are recorded. You can imagine there was a lot of like, it, that was probably a lot higher in the rural areas where it wasn't even recorded. So, yeah, I, I can see why she thought it was an act of, you know, uh, a good a good deed that she was doing. But it wasn't, you know, it, it, it was it was absolutely not, you know, it was just savage. And I think the fact that she then went and buried them secretly in the fields and she had all her fingers in the pies of, you know, who was filling out the death certificates and all the rest i think that is um that shows that even she knew that what she was doing was probably wrong deep down i think um something that's interesting about the story is the way that she had such control over the village you know she was like ebner for a start knew a lot more than he let on there's a quote actually of him saying that basically it was an open secret and um and he certainly knew what was going on but why he didn't speak up when she was in court you know she had such a um, like a, a level of power, it seems, in the village. Um, you know, basically everyone relied on her for all their medical care. So, so much stuff they relied on her for. You know, veterinary surgeons, like midwife, midwifery, midwifery, whatever it is. You know, basically, she was so incredibly powerful in that village. Um, and I think that's sort of how she managed to get away with it. I guess. Um, anyway, that's more or less that. I guess. Um. If you're interested in reading further, I breezed over the trials because they lasted years. They lasted a couple of years. Um, and, and obviously they consisted of like a lot of trials. Um, so um, I, I just sort of breezed over them because otherwise we would have been here all day. But if you would like to read about them, there there is a blog that I found that um, it's called Unknown Gender History. And it actually had... Um, a lot of articles on the trials uh, and they were quite interesting. So, you know, if you're interested in further reading, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And, um, you know, if you want to read the newspaper reports about the trials, um, they're quite easy to find because it was a big trial. Um, but yeah, this blog has 
uh, sort of consolidated quite a few of them, not all of them, but a lot of the key ones, um, especially of Maria uh, Maria's trial, into uh, a blog post. So it's definitely worth reading if you say if you're interested in the story and you fancy uh, further reading. Um, there is also a book um, on it by uh, Patty McCracken called The Angel Makers, The True Crime Story of the Most Astonishing Murder Ring in History. I didn't get on with it. I didn't like it. It wasn't to my taste. But if you wanted to read more, um, that that that's that is out there. Um, uh, there is another book coming out. Um, it's not out yet. It's coming out this year, I think, sometime about it. Um, and that uh, could be quite interesting. It's written by a feminist, um, and I, and it the the blurb for it so far says that she's sort of doing some controversial take. On, on the story so that could be quite an interesting book to read about it um the patty mccracken one is okay but she writes it more like a fiction story and she takes a lot of li- a lot of liabilities with what people were saying and feeling and thinking she, things that she just simply couldn't possibly have known uh you know she for the sake of the narrative and i understand why she made those choices um but that's not my style of book really but you might like it if you do it's it is out there. Like I say, it's worth reading if, if you're interested in, you know, if you like that kind of almost fictional, non-fiction narrative sort of driven stuff, then yeah, you might like that book. Anyway, enough of that. Um, thanks very much for listening. If you would like to contact me about anything, you can do so. Um, email is contact at darkhistories.com. Otherwise, uh, you can get in touch with me on social media, um, all that kind of stuff. Uh, if you'd like to support the show, uh, there is a Patreon and uh, obviously um, your support is very much uh, appreciated. There are plenty of other ways to support. Um, all of this kind of stuff is on the website, darkhistories.com. Uh, and yeah, that's about that. So thanks very much for listening. I'll be back um, in one week this time. Say, so like I said, um, next week's episode uh, will be out on time. This week's episode being a week late. Next week's episode will be on time. So yeah, I'll see you in a week. Until then... Take care, sleep tight.